Welcome to Sadie Records Chicago Classical Podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, Chicago's nonprofit classical record label. Every time we have a new release, we do a new podcast. And I'm very excited about this podcast, this new release, which is Blues Dialogues, music by black composers, featuring violinist Rachel Barden Pine, who is my guest on today's show. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Jim. The album also includes Rachel's longtime collaborator, the wonderful pianist Matthew Hagel. And I'm very proud to say I'm the producer of this album, working with Sadie Records superb engineer Bill Malone. And we've just heard, to start the podcast, an excerpt from the very first track on the album, David N. Baker's Blues, Deliver My Soul. So, Rachel, let's get right into it. Uh, Where did the idea for this album come from? Well, as a lifelong Chicagoan, just growing up, it's almost like blues was in the air. I would almost describe it as my indigenous music. Classical was what my parents always put on the radio in the car and at home. But somehow or another... The blues show on WBEZ would come on, Blues Breakers, I would hear all the classic past and present Chicago groups, and the blues fest would be in the air every summer, and my parents had their old LPs from their college days that they would sometimes play, and so this was just kind of a music that I've always loved, and when I was a teenager, I was in my favorite sheet music shop, and I was so excited to come across a piece by David Baker, which was a totally through composition piece of classical music, but obviously had a 12-bar blues. I mean, it was titled blues, so is the second movement of the Ravel Sonata, and that one is bluesy but not 12-bar blues. But this thing was obviously 12-bar blues, and I was like, whoa, I've got to play this. And I just really, really loved it, and over the years have played other works by composers of various ethnicities that have been inspired by the blues. But for this particular record, it actually was instigated by a recital that I gave a couple of years back for the Chicago Music Association, which is the historic very first branch of the National Association of Negro Musicians. And I gave an all-black composer's recital, and a lot of them were these jazzy, bluesy, inspired pieces, just because those are some of the ones that I love, even though that's only a narrow slice of the output of African-American or black composers, needless to say. So anyhow, after that recital, I got a lot of positive feedback, and I started to think, hmm, this might be an album. Now, of course, the subtitle of this album, Blues Dialogues, is Music by Black Composers. Uh, Can you talk about how this relates both to your previous recordings for CD and also to the work of your foundation. Yeah, so it's all coming full circle, really, because I had grown up being aware of works by black composers through Michael Morgan, the then assistant conductor of the Chicago Symphony, who was principal conductor of the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, the training ensemble of the CSO that I played in as a teenager. And of course, there were the concerts put on by the New Black Music Repertory Ensemble, the performing arm of the Center for Black Music Research here downtown, and then the Chicago Symphonietta's programming. This was just part of our Chicago culture. And I naively didn't realize that this wasn't part of everybody's musical life. So I was aware of this slice of the repertoire. And when I was invited by the Encore Chamber Orchestra to make my first violin and orchestra record for CD Records back in 97, Jim, you very candidly said that I was not yet well known enough in the profession to record famous concertos. So why didn't I record some lesser known concertos that people might be interested in because they were curious about the repertoire, whether or not they might have heard of the violinist. And so I thought, well, that was appropriate. And I looked for some 
really beautiful pieces that had never been recorded or had been seldom recorded. And I had recently performed an Afro-French classical period violin concerto from the time of Mozart by a black composer from Europe. So I wasn't even thinking of the coolness of that. I was just thinking about the fact that I really loved this piece. And so I went over to CBMR and I found some other concertos from the 18th and 19th centuries and we made our 97 record, Violin Concertos by Black Composers of the 18th and 19th centuries. And of course, the composer you're referring to is the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, known as Le Mozart Noir at the time. Exactly. <laughs> Mozart should have been the White Saint-Georges because it was actually Saint-Georges' symphonious concertants that inspired Mozart. But so those things go, unfortunately. What's interesting is that for another label, that very same year I made a recording by a famous composer, but of obscure works of his, some of the original music for violin by Franz Liszt, which people still don't realize he wrote original works for violin. So I guess the album didn't quite get into people's consciousness. But anyhow, both of those records came out around the same time. And I kind of naively thought of both of them in the same basket, like, oh, here's some cool violin repertoire you might not have heard of, and hopefully you'll like it. But what I didn't realize was the social value of the Black Composers record, because I started getting absolutely swamped with requests from students, parents, and teachers via snail mail in those days, email, people coming up to me in person, just saying, where can I find more of this music? Or my kid is in Suzuki Book 6. I really want them to learn a piece by a Black composer. What do you recommend? And I was, well, I don't know that much about it. I basically know these four concertos. But I realized that a lot of the work that those in the field of black music research had been doing so wonderfully for all these years has really been in the realm of academia. And the information about the repertoire and the history has not filtered out to the populace and is not easily obtainable by the average kid or the average violin teacher in the average town across America or elsewhere. So I had decided to start my charitable foundation, the Rachel Barton Pine Foundation, in 2001 for the purpose of young artists' support with financial assistance and instrument loans. And then I suddenly realized, okay, I've got a foundation, a not-for-profit that I started, and I've got this music research, music education project that needs to happen that nobody else is doing. And I am a research geek, and I'm very passionate about music education. So, hey, I should just do this as a project of my foundation. And what you say is really gratifying to me because my idea when we were planning this album was not only would the unusual repertoire hopefully bring more attention to you as a player, but I also hope that you as a player were going to bring more attention to this really special repertoire and to composers like Saint-Georges and Jose White and et cetera. Exactly. Uh, The timing of this album... That's coming out in conjunction with a specific publication of your foundation, if I'm correct. Exactly. So 2001, I decided to embark upon Music by Black Composers as an educational project. Our first component, our original signature component, is a curriculum for violin initially. Then we'll do the other strings. We'll do school orchestra, winds, chamber music. Who knows how far we'll carry it um, over the decades to come. But it's been 15 long years of research and more. Well, the first couple of years were gathering my advisory board and putting the concept together. But yeah, 15 years of research, digging all this stuff out. We've collected more than 900 works by more than 350 composers. Right now on our musicbyblackcomposers.org website, we have a directory of living black composers. We launched it just last month with about 68 names, and now it's up past 150. It's just amazing how much is out there, and it's sortable by year of birth, by gender, by geographic region. So if you're looking for a young female Afro-European composer, you can find her, either to play existing works or to commission. 
now that I'm a parent, as I'm sure everybody knows from my Violin Lullabies album, which, by the way, had a couple of works by Black composers on it, you know, I started trying to support my musical daughter with some of the usual stuff that parents get, like coloring books and composer timeline posters. And I realized, well, guess who's missing from the mainstream stuff? So Music by Black Composers decided to expand, and we're coming out simultaneously with our first volume of our curriculum and the CD. We're coming out with a coloring book of the 40 most important black composers, which each also contains their biography, and a timeline poster featuring more than 300 black composers, which I think will just be visually stunning in a general education kind of way just to see the span of history going from the 1700s to the present and the geographic span. We're color coding by region. We have a little symbol to make the women composers pop. So it's just really a strong statement that this is not a few isolated people, but that black musicians, African-American, African, and musicians of African descent from all over the planet have been making important contributions to classical music in quantities all throughout history. I think you've mentioned in the past that there's a diversity to these composers beyond just their ethnicity. Absolutely. Well, stylistically, it's really fascinating because you might presume that perhaps a black composer would draw upon other types of non-classical black musics. And of course, this is exactly what I've done on my Blues Dialogues album. But There's certainly Romantic-era stuff that sounds like Romantic-era stuff, classical period stuff that sounds like classical period stuff, modern stuff that sounds atonal or minimalistic or any style you can think of, of course, drawing upon different ethnic musics that might or might not be in the background of the composer, as many composers are like to do. And, of course, there is indeed music that draws upon spirituals, jazz, hip-hop these days, some wonderful pieces being created. So it's just a complete mix. And actually, one of the things I'm really excited about our Music by Black Composers Volume 1 is that it is the most diverse pedagogical material available for beginning-level violin Aside from the fact that it's black composers, it has a percentage of women composers in the mix. It has music from the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries all together in one book. It has art music from Africa, Europe, Latin America, the Caribbean, and North America, all in the same volume. And you just don't find this anywhere. And ever since the 97 (laughs) Sadie Record album, I've been invited to participate in diversity causes, which has become something I'm very, very passionate about. I'm on the board of Sphinx. And one of the things that you often hear is that young African-American kids who are interested in music don't feel like they have a place in it. They might not see anybody who looks like them among the ranks of their town's professional orchestra, etc. So in the pages of our books, besides the music and the composer bios, we have history articles about the all-black orchestras of America, past and present, kind of the equivalent of the Negro Baseball Leagues. We have an article about famous African-Americans who played the violin as an avocation, including Frederick Douglass mm. and MLK's wife, Coretta Scott King. So you can't say the, the violin isn't a black thing to do. And we have role model profiles. In the first volume, there's a Suzuki teacher, a soloist, and an entrepreneur who are all talking about growing up playing the violin and what their professional lives and music have become. Definitely, we want to inspire young black children to become the performers and programmers and audience members of the next generation. I think it's also important for students of all races and ethnicities to experience something like this collection so that it can normalize diversity of repertoire in their daily life and so that they grow up 
wanting the full experience of humanity to be part of their musical life as opposed to what we so often get right now, which is such a narrow slice. To get back to the blues side of this album, you've mentioned growing up with the blues in Chicago, and in fact, you named the blues in your essay in the booklet your second favorite musical style (laughs) after classical and just before heavy metal. (laughs) So what is for you so enjoyable or relatable about this genre? What makes it so special? I don't know that I can put it into words. I just feel like the blues is in my blood somehow because it's one of the only things I can listen to for hours and hours and hours on end without burning out. I love classical, but I listen to it with different ears, and sometimes you get tired after a while because you're focusing so much on the complexity and the interpretation, and the blues can be on in the background, and that's not an insult. I mean, it's not just background music, but I mean, it's just there, and it's inside of you, and it's just so comforting somehow. Yeah, it's hard to explain, but... I'm very passionate about heavy metal. That's music I get excited about, but the blues is like coming home. And, of course, in sequencing this album, we chose to open with some of the particularly bluesy works. Of course, we heard an excerpt from David and Baker's Blues Deliver My Soul to start this podcast. The next composer featured, a composer who based the last decade of his life in Chicago and whose music has been championed on Sadie Records in the past, is uh, Coach Taylor Perkinson, who lived from... 1932 to 2004, and we have two works of his, his Blues Forms for solo violin, and piece that he wrote essentially as a fourth movement addendum to that, Louisiana Blues Strut, which we're going to hear in a moment. I believe you've called this piece something like the coolest piece ever. (laughs) It's one of the only pieces I have to actually describe as addictive that I've ever played, where when I practice it, I just have to play it again and again and again. And then I remind myself that I've practiced it plenty and there are other things I need to practice before I run out of practice time. But I just want, and you know, I found the same phenomenon with the wonderful Sadie Records album devoted entirely to Perkinson's works. You know, I love his string symphonias, but there's a particular track on there, the Calvary Ostinato, which is one of the movements from the solo cello suite, and it's for pizzicato solo cello. And I can just listen to that thing on loop again and again and again for dozens of times and just keep listening to it. I've never heard a piece of Perkinson's that I didn't absolutely love, and it was a real honor to get to know him at the end of his life and work on his music with him. And, of course, on that earlier CD album, Coach Taylor Perkinson, A Celebration, the blues forms is played by the piece's dedicatee, Sanford Allen, the first regular African-American musician in the New York Philharmonic. Yeah, appointed by Bernstein. Your interpretation is very different of the piece. Did his influence you at all, or was it just completely separate? You know, I'm a big believer in the importance of the dedicatee as a component in crafting one's interpretation, that you often don't have the full story if you haven't also looked into the musical personality of the artist for whom a piece might have been written. However, the fact that Perkinson was actually alive and I got to talk to him firsthand, I decided to kind of leave it more at that because anything I was wondering about, I was able to ask him. Anything he didn't quite like yet, he was able to tell me, and we just made it its own thing. And I think the fact that Sanford's interpretation and my interpretation are quite different speaks a lot to the quality of the piece, that various approaches can be equally effective. I should mention all these works are for solo violin, unlike the baker that we heard earlier. I would encourage people to compare the two different interpretations of Blues Forms for Solo Violin, which is in three movements, but we're going to hear now, also for solo violin, Perkinson's Louisiana Blues Strut, A Cakewalk. 
We've just heard Louisiana Blue Strut, A Cakewalk, by Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, an African-American composer who based the last 10 years of his career in Chicago. Now, Rachel, what is your experience with the blues specifically in uh, live performance and previous recording, if any? Well, I've never actually played the real blues on any album, so to speak. (laughs) I might be a bit shy to do so, since there are better people out there, including, of course, um, the great Chicago violinist Edgar Gabriel, who's my dear friend and was really the person who got me up and running playing the blues on my own instrument. And he's just an absolute master at blues on the violin. You know, not that many people really do. And I'm talking about, you know, not country blues, not bluegrass. or I'm talking about like the real Chicago blues, but on the violin. And I'm really lucky to be in a town where there are so many great musicians. But I have had the opportunity to jam with some blues artists, including a very memorable occasion where O'Hare Airport was doing a special Chicago artists celebration. They were playing different records by Chicago musicians at the terminals instead of the usual canned music that airports do. And they had a media kickoff event to launch this project. And they invited various musicians of various genres to all attend and play little bits of things. And at one point, it was suggested that everybody join in and all play together. Well, everybody's coming from a completely different musical style, but we all thought, okay, if we do blues and E, we can probably all (laughs) do something. And so I actually got to rock out on a solo, jamming along with Sugar Blue and Sun Seals, who are two absolute electric blue legends. And that was definitely a musical highlight. So what do you find most enjoyable and or challenging about playing non-classical repertoire in general, as well as the blues in particular? 
Well, there's the improvisational aspect, having to basically make up your own notes over a set of chord changes <laughs> with nothing to guide you but your own instincts and taste and emotions and so on. That's a whole different way of making music than having notes on the page that you then have to figure out how to play. Now, there is, of course, a very personal and sometimes very spontaneous element to classical music making. How you play the notes can be very individual and very extemporaneous in a way. And I personally think I've become a better classical musician through doing full-fledged improv in other styles and just getting my creative juices flowing. I'm not going to ever add notes or change notes if I play a Beethoven sonata, but my imagination of how I might play those notes, I think, is definitely more happening because of other experiences I've had. Is there any analog to the ornamenting you have to do in Baroque music? Well, that's maybe more analogous to perhaps R&B music, for example, where a singer takes a melody line and adds all these melismas, sometimes far too many of them. But that can happen in Baroque, too. <laughs> One really clear analysis between early music and this jazzy, bluesy stuff is rhythm. When I'm playing 18th century French music, for example, like our French soiree record with my ensemble trio Settecento for CD. The even notes on the page are never played evenly. They're supposed to be played slightly unequally, almost a kind of swing to give the proper dancey feel to it. And knowing exactly how to pull that off, you have to really get deep into the style. And that was one of the things I worked on a lot with Colbert Taylor Perkinson, actually, was trying to make sure that what was on the page was actually being played in a way that matched his intentions, which were unnotatable rhythmically. This album features a lot of new and less known repertoire. What are the challenges in finding and interpreting such music, and how did you choose the pieces that you decided to feature on this album? Well, some of them were old friends that I've been playing for years and years and have performed numerous times, so they were obvious. The Levy Dance by Clarence Cameron White. He was one of the founders of the National Association of Negro Musicians back in the day, and his Levy Dance was recorded by Chrysler and Heifetz, not by himself. Probably he wasn't invited to do so because of the discrimination of 100 years ago. So it's kind of unfortunate that we never got to hear him play his own piece since he was apparently quite a virtuoso. But in any case, that piece actually has a quotation from the old spiritual Go Down Moses in the middle. And I got to play it at a charity event with none other than the great William Warfield oh. when that bit kicked in. Bill started singing the spiritual, ah. and then that kind of trailed off, and the Clarence Cameron White picked back up. <laughs> it was an amazing moment. So I've lived with a number of these pieces for quite a while, but then there were some that I knew about and had been on my wish list to learn, but there are certain fundamental obstacles to much of the music by Black composers, one of which is finding the music, and once you have, can you even play the music because, well, the Noel da Costa, the manuscript, is simply not readable. You can read it well enough to put it into the computer, but you can't, at least I can't, pick up the violin and play the notes off the page because of the handwriting. So I could tell enough of what the music was that I thought it was a super cool piece, but I could never learn it all these years because it was in this manuscript that I couldn't really read. So when I was gearing up for this album, I was like, I've got to include this piece. So I actually finally did do the work of getting it put into the computer and properly edited and so on. And that was quite a big job, but totally worth it because it did turn out to be every bit as awesome as I had suspected.
As we go through this album, pretty much in the order that the music comes, next composer after Coach Taylor Perkinson is the great William Grant Still, often referred to as the Dean of African American Composers. And in fact, the composers on this album span nearly a century. I'm glad you mentioned Clarence Cameron White. He's the earliest composer on the album, followed next by William Grant Still. So are there stylistic links between these pieces, and which elements of the blues would you say run throughout? Yeah, it's fun to see how many different subgenres, if you will, are referenced. You have the boogie-woogie in Errol and Wallen's Woogie Boogie, <laughs> which is a very fun piece by a woman composer from England of Caribbean descent. You've got the electric psychedelic blues of Jimi Hendrix referenced in Daniel Bernard Romain's Filter. And you know that, of course, also draws upon the hip-hop rhythm and minimalism and some of the other elements common to a lot of his works. And you have more jazzy blues in the Ellington, 12-bar blues, as I mentioned, in the Baker, but a 12-bar blues that actually I now recognize as being more of a gospel blues. I've actually played that Deliver My Soul piece for a number of sacred music occasions, both for more white and more African-American audiences, all of whom have greatly appreciated it. And then, of course, the Brown, incredible piece at the end that makes reference to some of the early field recordings of acoustic blues. And we can talk more about that later, but it's really fun to have that whole span. And then, of course, the Child's, the commission piece, is probably the most modernistic of all of the works. But somehow there's something about the feel of the blues that's still in there, not in a rollicking 12-bar blues way, but in the subject matter that takes place. So again, we can talk about that more later. But yeah, this is only black composers and it's only blues-influenced music by black composers. But within that narrow, narrow slice, there's incredible diversity, which is so fun. It's not that you're going to get piece after piece that sort of sounds the same at all. Oh, in fact, speaking of which, I think on one end of that spectrum would be the next piece we're going to hear an excerpt from, which is one of the major works on the album, William Grant Still's Suite for Violin and Piano, the second movement of which you previously recorded on your Violin Lullabies album, the Mother and Child piece. Then you talk about this suite in general, and then the movement we'll hear, which is the third movement, Gammon. Well, the Still Suite for Violin and Piano is definitely a masterpiece. It's probably the one piece on this whole set list that currently is in the repertoire of violinists, though I recently performed it in Quebec at a prestigious music festival, Domaine Forgette, and my colleagues who were professors from all over Canada, none of them had ever heard of William Grant Still. Mm. I thought at least he was one of the composers that you've heard of, but apparently maybe not outside of America. And gratifyingly, they were all very excited by his music and eager to discover more of it. But there's still work to be done, definitely. But this piece is really cool because each of the three movements was inspired by a different specific work of visual art by a different artist of the so-called Harlem Renaissance, of which William Grant Still was, of course, a major figure. And you can find these visual images of these artworks online and look at them while you listen to the movement, and it's quite fun. And speaking of which, the last moment, which we're about to hear, is particularly fun. You want to say anything? Yeah, I've heard the word jaunty used to describe both the music and the statue that inspired it, the the bust of a young boy with his hat turned cockily on the side, and (laughs) it just has a playful quality and a, a joie de vivre that I really love. Also appreciate that this particular movement of William Grant Still's Suite happens to use the work of a visual artist who's a woman. Well, let's hear that now. So this is the third movement of William Grant Still's Suite for Violin and Piano, 
The title of the movement is suggested by Augusta Savage's Gammon, and it's performed by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine and pianist Matthew Hagel. was Gammon, or suggested by Augusta Savage's Gammon, from William Grant Still's Suite for Violin and Piano, as performed by my guest on today's podcast, violinist Rachel Barden-Pine, and pianist Matthew Hagel. Now, the next work on this album, Blues Dialogues, Music by Black Composers, which is our new release on CD Records for October. In case you're hearing this archivally, that's October 2018, and which is incidentally available on CDRecords.org, our website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. The next work is actually a world premiere on record, and Rachel, you were talking earlier about putting the music in a form that's actually readable. Now, why is it so important to you to discover, perform, and record all of this music by black composers? Well, first of all, all of our lives are that much richer, the more good music we have in them. But also a lot of this music undoubtedly would have already been in the repertoire, if not for discrimination. And so it's important to right the ship. But, you know, if the music itself didn't hold up, then wouldn't quite be worth the effort, right? But that's absolutely not true. And one of the most gratifying things about practicing my RBP Foundation's Violin Volume 1 from our Music by Black Composers curriculum with my own six-year-old daughter this whole past year is that she doesn't get the importance of the fact that these are black composers. She just gets excited hearing each new melody. And the fact that she loves the music in a very pure way for its own sake, it just absolutely confirms our feeling that this is good music that has to be in our lives. 
Well, the piece we're about to hear, Moving From, Noel da Costa's A Set of Dance Tunes for Solo Violin, is a world premiere on record. How do you approach, if at all, how do you approach differently when you're making the world premiere recording of something? Well, I guess there are different pressures, right? So you don't have to worry that your interpretation is going to stack up against anybody else's, <laughs> but you also have the onus on you to make a case for the piece so that hopefully others will pick it up and start to play it. I certainly don't want any kind of feeling of exclusivity like, well, this is something I play. I mean, I want this to get out there. I have to really make a case for it, and hopefully I've done so. This particular piece, each movement has its own special flavor, and there's a lot of influences of popular music styles and fiddle tunes from back in the day, of course, not current popular music, but popular music of many decades ago. So there's a particular diversity to da Costa's background. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was really challenging to figure out how to color code him on our timeline poster because if you Google him, he's equally claimed as African, Caribbean, and American because he was born in Nigeria to parents of Jamaican descent who were there, I believe, as missionaries. And then he spent the mature part of his career in America. So what is he? Well, all I can say is he's a great composer. And he's actually talked about how these different locales have influenced his music, correct? Exactly. So it's definitely a lot of different streams of influence all coming together. Having had the opportunity to teach at fiddle camps for many years and gotten to know so many great fiddlers of various Americana styles, I think that really helped inform my ability to approach this music with good flavor and hopefully people who love fiddling and love cool violin repertoire, and especially repertoire for violin alone, I think is particularly special when you hear the violin standing on its own two feet and really shining. And we're going to hear, as we did with the Still Suite, the last movement. This is a five-movement piece. The last movement is titled New Orleans Clog Blues, which follows a short movement titled simply New Orleans Clog, which is the same tune, but in this movement it's played slower and with a lot more elaboration. Can you talk a little bit about this movement in particular? I listen to a lot of historic blues recordings uh, for pleasure. And, of course, the Martin Scorsese documentary, which was so inspiring. And the New Orleans blues style is, of course, one of the big genres. And this piece really captures that feeling just within one little solo violin. It's kind of amazing. And, of course, there's a reason it's called clog blues. Do you want to explain about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are particular foot stomps at the end of the movement. You know, normally you think, okay, I play the violin. I don't have to worry about using my feet like pianists and organists do or whatever else. I guess electric violinists these days have to worry about all those pedals. (laughs) Yeah, so there's a few stomps, which is probably... Now you've you've given it away. What is that Uh, called? A Uh, spoiler. A spoiler, (laughs) yeah. Well, I hope you enjoy the piece anyway. This is New Orleans Clog Blues from Noel da Costa's A Set of Dance Tunes for Solo Violin, performed by Rachel Barton-Pine.
We just heard New Orleans Clog Blues from Noel DaCosta's A Set of Dance Tunes for Solo Violin, performed by my guest on today's podcast, violinist Rachel Barden-Pine. Now, as we just heard, most of the pieces on this album offer a kind of fusion between the classical and blues genres. Some are more standard classical pieces that are blues-tinged. Others are more straight-ahead blues applied to acoustic violin. How do these styles fit together, and what do you find most interesting or unique about the combination? There's not a single piece on here that wouldn't absolutely be termed classical music. So this is no crossover album or just blues played on the violin, which is very cool. But as I said earlier, I leave that to the experts. But I love that this strand of influence manifests itself in so many different ways. Of course, among white composers, you have Bernstein, Gershwin, William Bolcom, Ravel. The list is endless. But it was important to me to feature some voices that might not have gotten the attention they deserve, along with others like Duke Ellington that you've certainly heard of. I was just going to ask you to relate this idea of the fusion to the next three works on the album, and we'll be hearing an excerpt from the third. And these are by Clarence Cameron White, Duke Ellington, and Dolores White. And I should mention about the Ellington that, of course, Ellington is the composer name on this beautiful piece. But actually, I came across this piece because I was looking for works by its arranger, Wendell Logan, who is a black composer himself, African-American musician who started the jazz studies program at Oberlin Conservatory and has written a lot of original works. But among his pieces, I found this, again, handwritten version that I also had to put into the computer of his arrangement of Duke Ellington's In a Sentimental Mood for violin and piano, and he does some really cool stuff with it. Matthew Hagel loves contemporary things um, as part of his musical diet, and he's always up for a bit of George Crumb or whatever you might throw (laughs) at him. He was particularly tickled to get to do a bit of prepared piano stuff. The pianist has to reach inside the piano and pluck some of the piano strings, and the reason that Wendell Logan did this in his version of the Ellington is because he wanted to conjure up the sound of a plucked jazz bass. Now, when we did this, we discovered that the balance between, at least with my 1742 Granary del Jesu, the balance between the violin, even when played softly, and these plucked inside strings of the piano just didn't quite blend. So a number of the other works on the album had been indicated to be played with mute moments or movements or even entire pieces. And so I thought, well, why don't I use the mute for that section? And then that balanced things Ah. perfectly. And Fortunately, the composer is no longer alive, so I didn't get to ask his permission or suggest it to him, but I can't imagine that he would have disapproved because I used to go very frequently to see Johnny Frigo, the great jazz violinist from the Grappelli era, play at this little velvet-walled cognac bar, this little intimate room called Toulouse on the Park. My husband and I went there for some of our earliest dates, and there'd be people who were soloing with lyric would be there and get up and do a tune. And it was just kind of the mecca. And Johnny Frigo would frequently put a mute on his violin for special moments. So I thought, okay, this is very fitting. Well, now you've already mentioned the Clarence Cameron White and his use of uh, Go Down Moses. So let's move on to the piece we're going to hear a movement from, and I've, I've been choosing these excerpts often from the larger works on the album just to give a better overview. And the next one is Dolores White's Lose Dialogues for Solo Violin, the title track on the album. 
And in fact, the last moment that we're about to hear is another world premiere. Can you talk about the larger piece and that moment? Yeah. So Dolores White is a Cleveland composer. Um, She was married to the late Donald White, cellist from the Cleveland Orchestra, who is the first black member of that orchestra. And she wrote her first three movements of this unaccompanied suite, inspired by Coleridge Taylor Perkinson's three-movement blues forms. And it's a very different piece, very different musical voice, about the idea of writing a set of unaccompanied movements that were all sort of jazzy, bluesy, inspired for classical violin. She got the idea from Perk. And so then when Perkinson wrote his fourth movement, she decided to write a fourth movement for her suite, unlike Perkinson. She does intend for the now four-movement suite to be performed as a whole, whereas Perkinson decided that his fourth movement was different enough that it should really be a separate, standalone kind of a cousin to the original three. The other thing that's different is that Dolores White not only added the fourth movement but made uh, a number of small changes to her original three movements when she went back and revisited her piece. So the three movements in their original version were recorded by Gregory Walker, wonderful violinist and composer, um, dear friend, who is the son of the late, great George Walker, of course, the first African-American composer to win a Pulitzer. And actually, my RBP Foundation had the great honor of loaning Gregory a Strad when he recorded George Walker's Concerto for Violin. So Gregory Walker recorded a fantastic album, which not enough people know about, with his mother, Helen Walker Hill, who was one of the preeminent researchers of black women composers. It's an album entirely dedicated to the works of African-American women composers, both for solo piano, played by Helen Walker Hill, as well as violin and piano, with the two of them together, and of course, solo violin with Gregory. So the original version of the Blues Dialogue's first three movements can be heard on that record. And so I was lucky to work with Dolores White and get to know her just recently because for a couple of years she was composer in residence at NANM Branch Number 1 Chicago Music Association. And I had known about her three-movement version and had fooled around with it over the years but never yet performed it. But when I did that recital for CMA of Black Composer Pieces, I performed Dolores White's four-movement suite, and she was in the audience along with a couple of members of her family, and it was just a very, very special moment. I loved her piece, but the reason I titled the album Blues Dialogues was just because I thought that that title captured so well what's going on with the album as a whole, which is a dialogue between blues and classical. Your wife, of course, the beautiful soprano Patrice Michaels, recorded a jazz meets classical album named Intersection. And so I thought, you know, dialogues is something along those same lines. Very clever. Now, we're about to hear the fourth moment. Uh, even though she incorporated into the piece, this moment does stand out as a little bit different from the first three. Can you just talk a little bit about the nature of this movement, which is simply marked moderately fast? <laughs> yeah, well, it's very virtuosic. I'm not in a show-offy way, but it's very technically demanding for the violinist. Very substantive piece, and that kind of ebbs and flows, and it has pretty sizable quotation from the solo sonata of one of her composer idols, Bella Bartok. And this is a quotation of a bit of the first movement of the Bartok solo sonata, which, of course, I know and love. And it's really cool to just see how she molded it and changed it just a little bit and kind of turned Bartok into the blues while she was at it. Very, very fun stuff. So here is the fourth moment, moderately fast, from Dolores White's Blues Dialogues for Solo Violin, performed by violinist Rachel Barden-Pine. (laughs) ¶¶ 
That was the fourth movement, moderately fast, as it's marked, from Dolores White's Blues Dialogues for Solo Violin, the title piece of this new album, Blues Dialogues, music by black composers featuring violinist Rachel Barden-Pine, who you just heard, and on much of the album, if not most of the album, her pianist collaborator, wonderful Matthew Hagel. And in fact, the next piece on the album is also by a woman composer. Again, Rachel talked about the wonderful diversity of all these composers. That's Erilyn Wallen's Woogie Boogie, which we talked a little bit about earlier in the podcast. And the next work after that on the album is a commission. Rachel, can you talk a little bit about the importance to you of commissioning new works? Yeah, well, there are so many great composers out there. And not all of them have yet written pieces for violin, <laughs> so we don't want them to escape doing so and you know have that loss. So Billy Childs is a wonderful composer. He has a one foot equally in both worlds. He has a jazz ensemble that he tours with, but he's also frequently writing for symphony. He's currently president of Chamber Music America. So he was really an obvious choice when I commissioned last year a work for unaccompanied violin, a suite of movements to go along with my Bach Partitas project where I was pairing the partitas with kind of dancey suites by other composers or in Billy's case, more of a polyphonic type approach. Anyway, um, I won't get into all of that, but we'd worked together before, as I said, for unaccompanied violin. And then when I was thinking about who should be on this album, I really thought that he belonged in the mix, but he had never written anything else for solo violin. And the piece he did write didn't quite fit this program. He had never written anything for violin and piano either. So I thought, well, that would kind of fill a hole. And so I asked him to write something for me. And when he got back to me about it, he said, would I be comfortable if he had a programmatic element to the piece? Because he had been very personally affected by the killing of Philando Castile in 2016, and he had always wanted to. And that's a police shooting, in fact. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And he'd wanted to have a musical response to that. And actually, as it turned out, I had recently attended the gala concert of you know the Sphinx competition with the Sphinx Symphony. And on that afternoon's program in Detroit, they played the world premiere of an orchestral version of the choral piece by the young African-American composer from Atlanta, Joel Thompson, entitled The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. Uh. And this, of course, is hands up, don't shoot, and I can't breathe, and you know things that happened actually prior to Castile. And sadly, there's no lack of material these days. And so The Seven Last Words performance was just a astonishingly moving. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. Everybody was so affected by this piece. And I thought one of the purposes of music is to shine a light on social justice issues. And so wouldn't it be incredible to have a piece like this for me to play on violin? So what he came up with is incredibly powerful. And it does have a programmatic storyline to it. The music starts out very ominously. Then it becomes increasingly violent. You ultimately hear the famous seven gunshots played by the piano and the response to them, the panic and a moment of silence. And there's a dirge-like music, the whimpers of the little girl in the back seat, sadness, anger. It ultimately ends with the same ominous music as if to say, you know, this is likely to happen again, kind of unresolved. And actually, Billy Child said that the one thing he hopes that when you listen to this music, it will make you think. It will definitely make you feel, that's for sure. And just yesterday, I was in St. Paul, Minnesota to record some interviews about this album with Performance Today and Fred Child and over at NPR. 
And that was only four miles away from where this incident had taken place, incident on Larpenter Avenue, as the work is called. So we actually, before heading back to the airport, we took a little side trip, made a pilgrimage to the Philando Castile Memorial. And it was just amazing to see this sunny, friendly street and to think about how this had happened, this music I'd been practicing and playing for, for all these months and to just see with my own eyes. Words can't really express the emotions about this kind of thing happening in our country. And I think, you know, that's where music can come in and express the inexpressible. One might say of this piece, the motifs are not blues related, but the motive for the piece is very much in keeping with the blues tradition. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Blues music as a kind of protest music, as expressing everything from joy to struggle. You know, that's definitely a a long tradition that this piece really feels like it, it fits into the program from that perspective. So let's hear an excerpt. It's actually the longest single movement on the album, so we'll hear an excerpt as commissioned by Rachel Barden Pine specifically for the Blues Dialogues Project. Billy Child's Incident on Larpenter Avenue, performed by Rachel Barden Pine and Matthew Hagel.
That was an excerpt from Billy Child's new work, world premiere on record, Incident on Larpenter Avenue, a programmatic piece based on the Philando Castile police shooting in the Twin Cities just a couple of years ago. And it was performed by Rachel Barden Pine and Matthew Hagel on piano for their new album, Blues Dialogues, Music by Black Composers on Sadie Records. Since this album is so blues-influenced, who are some of your blues influences, Rachel? (laughs) Yeah, well, of course, the obvious suspects, Buddy Guy, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, the great harmonica players like Paul Butterfield and Charlie Musselwhite, all the, the famous Chicago blues artists. My favorite blues singer is absolutely Coco Taylor, and my favorite of her songs is I Am a Woman. In my next life, I want to come back and sing like Coco Taylor. (laughs) Right now, I'm pathetically unable to do so. But actually, probably the blues band that's closest to my heart is the Siegel Schwal Blues Band. My parents went and watched them at this old Chicago bar, The Quiet Night, that no longer exists, but old-timers will all remember it, when they were dating in college, attending the University of Chicago, and when they were a young married couple before I came along and spoiled their fun. But my parents were not the only fans of Corky and his band. Um, Seiji Ozawa used to go to The Quiet Night and listen to them, and they noticed this short Japanese guy, you know, (laughs) sitting in the front row. This is when Um, he was a music director at Ravinia? Exactly. And so one day he came up to them and said, would your band like to jam with my band? Um, (laughs) Well, of course, he meant, would you guys like to solo with the Chicago Symphony? So he commissioned very famous Chicago composer Bill Russo to write a concerto for blues band and orchestra. It went on to be performed by the Chicago Symphony and all over and was recorded with, I believe, the San Francisco Symphony and won a bunch of awards and Then there was a concerto just for harmonic and orchestra that Corky did, and he had never given classical music a passing glance prior to that, but then he was totally hooked, and now he spends the majority of his musical life touring with his own ensemble, Chamber Blues, which is string quartet plus Corky singing, playing blues harmonica and blues piano, as well as sometimes a rhythm player. And it's a wonderful fusion ensemble, and as part of the process of composing for his chamber blues, he ended up writing an unaccompanied violin piece called Opus 11, and in typical Corky Siegel style, it's actually not his 11th opus, Um, but it makes sense if you know him. And so I actually learned that piece when I was a teenager and told him about how my parents had loved his band more than any other, and I might not even exist if he hadn't, you know, inspired their romance. Yeah, so it's been a wonderful friendship, and I love listening to his albums, and I probably listen to them prenatally, so there you go. So uh, was there any special preparation you did to do an album of blues-inspired classical works? Well, I actually went to another great Chicago educator, composer, performer, and just all-around musical genius, Orbert Davis, who has the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic and all of its related activities. Orbert was kind enough to give me a coaching on some of the pieces that I hadn't lived with for a long time or hadn't worked with the composer themselves, particularly the William Grant Still Blues from Lenox Avenue and the Ellington piece and some of the Noel da Costa movements and played a a number of the works for him and just got his thoughts. And it was very, very helpful to make sure that I was, again, with the right rhythm, the right feel. Was I laid back enough or laid back too much, et cetera. So I'm very, very grateful to Orbert for that. I should mention that William Grant Stills 
Blues on Lenox Avenue is available digitally separate from the CD album. It didn't quite fit on the CD, but you can purchase it and listen to it digitally as a separate track, and it's a really wonderful piece. If you buy the entire album digitally, you get it automatically. That's right, but you can also buy it digitally separately. If if you've bought the physical CD. Exactly. Now, the violin is not a traditional blues instrument. What techniques? Actually, I, yeah, that uh, is not true, Jim. Okay. <laughs> now, these yeah. days, you don't often see the violin jamming along with electric blues bands. Okay. Sadly, it ought to be, but it's not as much as it should be. But back in the day, if you go to like the archival, you know, historic early 20th century field recordings and listen to acoustic blues, and there's a wonderful album called Violin Sing the Blues for Me. And another one that I'm blanking on the name, it's albums that are all African-American acoustic blues bands with this old, scratchy, field-recording kind of sound. It's a very distinctive style. And those, of course, were the guys that taught the later fiddlers who then sort of combined the blues and the Celtic fiddling to become the American country styles. And ultimately, when the blues musicians themselves needed to be louder, the violin sort of fell by the wayside, sadly. So with that in mind, what techniques do you use to get a bluesy sound, and what are some of the things that the violin actually does particularly well in this style? Well, obviously there's flautando in the jazzy moments when you want to have that kind of shimmery quality or slightly murky sound. The left hand has to be able to do slides in a kind of a way, you know, the idea of blue notes of these pitches that are sort of under the pitch. And it's not an expressive romantic kind of classical slide. It's this other kind of thing that luckily I've had a good deal of experience with over the years playing non-classical music. So just making sure you put those in the right way that you have the right emphasis from the bow as you're doing them, that's a lot of what I've picked up from my friend that I mentioned earlier, Edgar Gabriel, the master Chicago blues violinist. But in my friend Daniel Bernard Romain's filter on this album, he's actually taking things all the way to the 21st century. And rather than going farther away from the bridge, I'm actually going closer to the bridge where you get a scratchy sound. And that's actually meant to imitate in an acoustic way the feedback sort of effect or fuzz that you can get with some of the plugged-in electric instrument, you know, whether it's violin or guitar, this sort of distorted sound that, of course, really coming from the rock world, but now there's been this feedback loop where blues inspired rock, and now rock has inspired the current generation of blues musicians and so on. I get to sort of move closer to the bridge and then back away and then closer again and kind of have this special sound world that's imitating plugged-in instruments. And this piece remains filter. One of the things that makes it fascinating, and it's been performed by a number of violinists, is... Including DBR himself, of course. ...is that in this technique of moving closer and further from the bridge gives each performance a completely different sound because it's the violinist who's choosing where to do that. It's not marked in the score, here's where you must get close to the bridge necessarily. There's your improv element, and I played it a number of times in my practice sessions and even in pre-recording preparation performances where I did those what we call in classical music ponticello moments in different places. And sometimes I would record myself and listen back and see if I liked it. Or Now, in a real performance, I would probably be more spontaneous, but for 
a studio recording session, I want to make sure I have some degree of consistency so that editing is possible. Which, so, I, as producer, <laughs> I appreciate that greatly. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes do that with Baroque ornaments as well. Instead of just doing different ones every time, I might choose one I like and then do it five times the same. It's just kind of what you have to do in the art form of recorded music, which is slightly different than live concert. Anyhow, what I did is I made some decisions about what I liked in terms of where I did the filtering and where I did it without the filtering and made a roadmap for the album. But if you ever do hear me play this piece in concert, you might get a very different version than what you've heard on recording. And speaking of the recording, your performance is even more unique, if you can modify unique, because Daniel actually wrote a special cadenza for you a la Jimi Hendrix, right? Exactly. Well, I think... The opening cadenza, as he has it in the printed music, is really there as a placeholder and that he hopes that the violinist that will perform it has enough experience with improvisation that they can use that as a jumping off point and come up with their own wild and crazy thing. But I thought for this album, since everything else is through composed, while I certainly could have come up with my own cadenza and indeed have done so for concertos by Mozart and Brahms and Beethoven and many others, I thought I wanted to invite Daniel to write his own cadenza for me for this album because then the piece would be more fully his, which is what I really wanted to highlight on this record. Well, let's hear that now. This is Daniel Bernard Romain's Filter for Unaccompanied Violin with opening cadenza titled Hollerin' in the Night, and it's, of course, performed by Rachel Barden-Pine.
That was Daniel Bernard Rumain's Filter for Unaccompanied Violin with New Cadenza, written specially for the artist who you just heard perform it, violinist Rachel Barden-Pine from her new album, Blues Dialogues, Music by Black Composers. And as we always ask on these podcasts, uh, Rachel, about these new albums, what is it that you hope listeners will learn or take away from listening to it? Well, quite frankly, I'm hoping that, as with any album, I'm hoping listeners will simply enjoy listening, enjoy the music, find things that move them, that make them happy, that make them troubled, perhaps. Music is not just there to entertain, but to cause you to experience life more deeply. But I'm hoping specifically for this album that knowing that all of these enjoyable pieces are by Black composers will inspire people to like them enough to seek out more works by Black composers. There's, of course, the symphonic series on Sadie Records with the Chicago Symphonietta fantastic three-album overview of some of the best of orchestral works um, through the generations. There are other works by these composers on this album there in the universe. Um, There's so much to discover, so many different voices, and I hope that any violinists that hear this album will be inspired to play this music for those pieces that are not easily available in print. I would be more than happy to provide the sheet music because that is, in fact, of course, one of the parts of the mission of my Foundation's Music by Black Composers project. And I would love to know that my colleagues and violin students out there are now starting to play this stuff because it really deserves to be widely heard and widely performed. And the other question we always ask on these podcasts is what is for you so special about the classical music scene in Chicago? And I'll add to that for this particular album, the blues scene as well. (laughs) Well, well, this album is all about diversity on so many levels, and that is exactly why I love the Chicago music scene is for its diversity. We have world-class classical music, symphony, opera, early music, contemporary music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have blues, we have heavy metal, we have a country scene, which is apparently very important. (laughs) You name it. I mean, I grew up going to the clubs and listening to Chicago house music and industrial music with all the wax track stuff. And it's just such a rich scene with so many different kinds of music, all of which are inspiring in their own way. There's something for everyone and there's lots for anyone. (laughs) So being in Chicago is just a never-ending source of renewed excitement about music. Uh, We uh, opened the podcast and the album with some of the bluesiest pieces on the program. And, of course, the album ends with a particularly bluesy piece, Charles S. Brown's A Song Without Words, based on music of a great older figure of the blues. And we'll be going out with some music from this piece. Can you talk a little bit about it as we go? Blind Willie Johnson's Hummed track, which you can easily find on YouTube these days, uh, you know, Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, which is actually a wordless song, Hummed. Now, this particular piece by Charles S. Brown doesn't quote any exact melodies from Blind Willie Johnson's classic, but the feel is very similar, the idea of it, and it's written for voice, for classical voice to be hummed in this bluesy kind of way with an art music piano accompaniment. But there's a long tradition of stringed instruments playing songs without words. You think about the Mendelssohn, the Dvorak. So I didn't want to, on this album, play anything that wasn't actually written or arranged for the violin by others. But in this particular case, this was 
such an incredible piece. I just had to play it, and I felt totally justified in doing so because since there were no lyrics in the first place, I might as well just play this on my instrument. And so it actually is the first recording of this piece on violin. You can hear vocal versions also on YouTube. And I should mention that Dark as the Night, Cold was the Ground is historically significant as being one of a few works of human music making which was sent out into outer space so that if, I guess, aliens ever encounter us and want to hear our music, this is one of the things they will hear. So having a classical piece inspired by this particular blues piece is just amazing. And that was the voice of Rachel Barden-Pine, violinist, the featured artist on this album, new album on CD Records, Blues Dialogues, music by black composers, along with pianist Matthew Hagel on many of the tracks, including Final One. It's available on Sadie Records at sadierecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records and producer of this wonderful album. Thank you so much for listening. 